Well, today on the podcast, we have Andy Rougeau. We are uh, very excited to, to welcome him uh, to hear about his, his journey, uh, searching for and acquiring a small business. Uh, Andy, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. First time podcasting. <laughs> That's great. Uh, maybe to start out, could you uh, just give us a, a brief descri- description of the business uh, that you own today, and then we you know, we can go from there. Sure, I own and operate RG Maintenance, or commercial maintenance business for self storage facilities. So that means we fix the wrought iron slide gates, keypads, roll up doors, all sort of stuff that breaks. We started off as twelve guys when I acquired it, and now we're thirty two in four different states. That's great. And I assume starting out as a child, you knew this is what you wanted to do. I, you know, was super excited about self storage as a young man <laughs> in uh, you know, Toronto, Canada. No, I was not never knew anything about the space, and then uh, had a self storage unit that got flooded by fires when I was deployed, and that was the only experience I had with self storage prior to. That's great. Well, maybe going back, can you give us a little bit about your your background, kind of where you grew up, and how you ended up joining the military? So I moved around a lot as a kid. Um, so both French and American by heritage, lived in New England, Maryland, Maine, Canada, England, Spain. Uh, but I ended up going to college in Colby College in Waterville, Maine. I was trying to decide what I want to do after college. It was either the Peace Corps, where I was going to do large animal farming, or join the military, where I was going to give it a chance to be an intelligence officer by OCS. And then I was worried about my ability to speak French in rural you know, West Africa, so I decided to go with the Army instead of with the Peace Corps. That's great. And how long did you serve in the military? I did a four-year stint, so got out as a low-level captain. And then, what 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 did you? What were kind of the the, the initial you know steps as you, as you were transitioning from the military? What did you end up doing? So uh, leaving the military, I was lucky enough to go to Harvard Business School, where while there I thought I was going to be a management consultant, and then quickly realized it's a horrible job to have. So highly recommend to anybody who's listening to the podcast: do not be a management consultant. It's a soul-sucking job, even those people who who are there. Uh, But I heard about search while I was at HBS. So we had a a gentleman named Jim Sharp, who's an entrepreneur in residence, who gave a talk to young veterans who were looking at the space. It was super exciting to see, you know, you could have a essentially small unit leadership role that you're used to having in the military and that could translate to a business, also be something where you could be very financially successful doing it, have some of that entrepreneurial spirit, but for one who doesn't have an idea that they want to launch for a business. So something that immediately was very resonant to me. And then during my second year at HBS, we have several classes that you can take that help you with uh, you're starting your journey on entrepreneurship through acquisition. And I started searching during the second half of my year at second year at HBS. And had you had you ever heard of search funds or entrepreneurship through acquisition before business school, or, or was it? I had never heard of it, and I had no idea that you could be running a small business after leaving business school. I had, I had no idea there was this universe of amazing small businesses that are incredibly profitable. And the fact that the guy who owns the landscaping company probably makes a lot more than the you know vice president of a relatively large sized business. Yeah. And just how did you ultimately decide during business school to, to go down the, the ETA route? What was it that kind of finally finally pushed, pushed you over the finish line? So it was at the cell weekend for McKenzie in Miami when they had all these speakers lined up. And I said, I don't want to go listen to any of these people. I'm instead going to sit in my room and do my first model of what it would look like to buy a small business while sitting on the nice McKenzie provided you know, hotel room with the balcony looking out over the ocean. So it was a very pleasant experience. I really enjoyed it. I felt, you know, like I was really getting my full money's worth from the McKenzie. Uh, s- sounds like a great start. Yeah. <laughs> so as, as you think about, you know, now having operated the business uh, for as long as you have, you know, what, what what are your thoughts on just sort of being able to transfer what you learned in the, in the military, both from you know experience and, and skill set to, to what you're doing today? So I think it's an incredibly obvious transition from leading a small team, especially for guys who are, you say, the combat arms or sort of combat adjacent arms, to saying I led a platoon to leading a blue collar workforce. In each, you know, in entrepreneurship acquisition, there's sort of different types of businesses that you can acquire, and then certain types of people sort of gravitate towards certain types of businesses. So I think veterans have an even more unique competitive advantage that we could actually run a blue collar business. 
and we understand the biggest issue with blue collar business is managing a blue collar workforce, something that's difficult to do. But if you are used to managing a blue collar workforce in the military, a lot of those skills transfer. Down, you know, one upside is that you can fire bad employees, which is very hard to do in the military. If you want to get rid of a bad soldier, you gotta wait till he goes gets a DUI before I can get rid of him. Um, downside is good employees can leave if you don't treat them right. So it's something where you can't get stuck with a quality NCO. Or you're just like, yes, I'm going to hold on to this guy as long as possible. But a lot of those skills transfer. And then your you know, competition or other people who are looking to buy small businesses are probably people who don't either like to manage blue collar workers or don't have that skill set. So even within the universe of buying a small business, which is already a pretty you know, small cohort that's looking to buy those things, you are have a competitive advantage that you could actually take over a small business that has a blue collar workforce and excel in it. Versus most people say who have a investment banking or private equity background where maybe they feel very comfortable with due diligence, but they wouldn't feel comfortable at running, like for me, a commercial maintenance business where you've got guys turn wrenches all day. Mm-hmm. And did that, did that inform the types of businesses that you decided to look for during your search phase? Just the sort of your military background and sort of comfort with, with some of the blue collar businesses? It did. Because that meant when I looked at some more, say, you know, um, more of a traditional like PE target. So if I'm looking at something that's a SaaS, like low, very small software SaaS business, felt much less comfortable being able to say, hey, I can one, due diligence and model this to the point where I'm buying something at seven times versus buying you know a business like mine that I buy at a three and a quarter. And I'm like, I understand the operations, literally time and materials business. So very, you know, simple accounting, simple business to understand. Key, key question is how do I have the right guys maintaining you know our quality of work and then some sales which you know again military leaders think they don't know how to do sales but I think lots of us are actually relatively strong at it and it's something where we can connect especially blue collar businesses you're probably connecting with blue collar professionals so guys who maybe have a military background or maybe have sort of not a you know elite undergrad type degree, but they're saying, yeah. hey, they were, you know, business or construction major and so local state university, they're much more comfortable interacting with the veteran. They would be more interacting with a Stanford MBA who's been an iBanker for four years. No, that makes a lot of sense. And apart apart from maybe the other side, uh, you know, obviously a lot of strengths as a, as a, you know, military leader transitioning to small business ownership, any gaps that you saw when you were launching your search that, that you felt like you needed to, you know, address or, and maybe, maybe ways that you, you tried to address that, especially in the search phase. Yeah. So, I mean, I think due diligence, you're going to feel less comfortable than people who have done it before because you're just, your understanding of what a good business is, is either going to be way too broad. So you're going to want to try to buy everything or it's going to be way too constricted. You're just not going to have the same number of reps that say, you know, someone who's been in private equity for a while will have said, hey, I've seen 40 of these deals go through and admittedly their their repertoire will be a little skewed towards larger businesses. So they're not going to expect as much hair as you'd see on a small business. But they would still, I think, have a little bit more realistic idea of, you know, for one, how do I do diligence to this question? So saying, is customer concentration an issue? How do I go about doing the analysis that for one works for me, but two is something that I can present to investors and present to banks where they say, yeah, I feel comfortable with this level of analysis. But that's stuff that is all you know, treatable with reps or is treatable with net, network of other veterans. So if you call up another veteran who's either bought a business, who's searching, they will happily be resources and say, hey, I'm looking at this business. You know, It's somewhat in your area or maybe not at all, but I do have a specific question on customer concentration. Help me think through it. How should I think about, is this an issue? Is this cyclicality action an issue? And there is a great network of people who will want to help for free, take 30 minutes at their time to answer questions that you have to lean on as a veteran. But the nice thing is we have that network where if you're a guy getting out and you're going to this you know, somewhat unique you know, approach of life, it's something where there's people you can pick up the phone and ask for help. Yeah. No, I, I think that's, that, that's an, a great point about the, the ETA community that, that I think everyone who is, who is new to it is, is, is surprised just how willing people are. It's just part, part of the community, right? In terms of as people are launching a search or even thinking about launching a search, you know, being willing to take calls and things like that. So that, that's great to hear that helped you. Cause I know I'm, I'm sure you do it now uh, the, the other way around as you're, as you're yeah. advising and, and, and helping, you know, both prospective and active searchers who are looking for businesses. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like even for, for veterans, even more so I, I've noticed, you know, just a, a really great network and community of people helping, uh, you know, younger veterans who are pursuing the path. Yeah. And something a lot of veterans are worried about is, is the actual fundraising portion because it's something we haven't done before, but just it is easier than you think it's going to be. If you have a good deal, 
which there are less good deals and there are people who want to put money behind good deals. So like capital is cheap, good entrepreneur and a good deal is expensive. So when you have that deal, which you'll figure out when you have it or not, you will be able to raise money for it. So thinking just saying like, hey, I'm not, you know, I don't come from a rich background is not a reason not to do search or saying, hey, I, you know, something I haven't done before is not a good reason to do search because you will be able to raise that money and good resources. Again, other veterans who've done this before and you call them up and say, hey, Andy, who are your investors? Which ones of these did you like? And you do that to 10 different veterans, you're going to come up with a pretty good list of people to reach out to. And if you reach out to those veterans or reach out to those investors and say, hey, I'm a veteran. Here's why this is a good business. Here's why I'm a good fit to run it. You'll be able to raise the money for it. So did you did you find the capital raise was actually considerably easier than you than you imagined going in? I did, yeah. So oversubscribed, like you know, I think most of these most good deals are, uh, or at least acceptable deals are, uh, and then something where you know they want to invest in guys who they think are going to run these businesses well. So it's something that I think as veterans we can show that we've actually led blue collar businesses or blue collar teams before. So that gets rid of one of the operational risks that an investor is looking at and saying, can this guy actually be a CEO? And if you said I've been a you know platoon leader, company commander, operating in my own you know cop or something where I've had to operate far away from guidance, it's pretty reasonable to say you're going to be able to manage a business. And you're, what you're going to screw up is things that you can figure out. So like someone can help if you you, know, you feel like your accounting class didn't give you enough help. There's resources you can get, uh, you know, learn how to do accounting well. It's much harder to take someone who's a bad leader or someone who's you're just like not thoughtful as a person and say like we're going to executive coach you up to being a acceptable leader. It's harder to do. Yeah, no, I agree entirely. And as you as you look back now, you know, maybe specific to the search phase or even the pre-search phase, any specific advice you would give to veterans um, about either, you know, what they can do before launching a search or, or during the search phase that, that you, that you found, uh, useful or, or even surprising, uh, you know, looking back now. Yeah. So I'd say use interns. So it's something that, you know, we as you know, veterans feel like, Hey, I don't know if I should be using unpaid and like, are my unpaid interns getting value out of this? That makes it worth it. And it's something that you can actually have a huge impact on those guys' future career trajectory. You just have to pick the right type of interns. So like having MBA interns, I think is a bad idea. I don't think you want to have someone who like this is their first job out of college type of interns either. I would, what I use is I use sophomore rising juniors, essentially from local colleges. So guys who don't have a, a career track, obviously into the sort of iBanking um, internship pipeline that you sort of mm-hmm. see some of those guys do where they do a regional one and they go to something in New York between their junior and their senior year. So a lot of these local colleges have pretty strong either businesses or finance programs that don't really have a feeder pipeline into that. So giving them a summer or a fall or a spring internship where they are, where you are actually coaching and mentoring them. And some of that's basic stuff of like, what should you talk about at work? So like for me, I use the public library space in the city of Denver as our office. So we had one desk with nine of us around it. So eight interns and me. And one is like, what can we talk about as a group that's acceptable and your boss is there? And like them learning that line, seeming like on time, attention to detail, valuable to a you know, 19 to 20 year old kid who is their first job. But also like I would do counselings every single week, which I thought was useful. And I give them one stretch project a week, which is something where, you know, 35 to 36 hours out of the day, they're literally just screening businesses, which is relatively mindless work. And they're also finding you know, owner contact information. So it's something that's, you know, not a huge value add to them, but then doing four to five hours a week of saying, you're going to be responsible for doing X analysis on this business. So saying either you're not actually build the model and what we should price this at. And this is something that you've already done all this work yourself. So you're not relying realistically on the interns to do any of this in a way that drives a decision for you, but is huge value add for them. Because then at the end of the summer, they once say, hey, like I did a customer concentration analysis for a business that was actually acquired. Like for me, I had each of my interns do all my due diligence items Essentially, after I'd already done them, but I didn't tell them I'd already do them. And then they would do it and there would be obvious flaws. You could sort of lead them through it, but it'd be a very valuable experience for them. And then they come out of it saying, hey, I had a leader who actively coached me, you know, every day, you know, every day. And then once a week, I had a counseling. I have a couple of good bullet points that I can say on my resume. It's that, you know, I did this analysis for a small private equity firm led by an HBS grad, like in my case. It sounds a lot sexier than I worked in the library with eight other guys around a table. Um, and then we would do cases because just with a Harvard background, we use cases as a way of education. So we do 
Friday breakfast at a local diner, which is the only paid thing I do is I buy everybody breakfast. And then we give them a Harvard case the night before. And then we talk through one of these entrepreneurship through acquisition cases. We give them a little bit of experience of that. So something where it's very valuable for those guys, where I still am now references for these guys as their in their third or fourth year of actually working. Two of the guys went into the military because they got convinced that it was a good idea. <laughs> uh, Maybe that, that was the pathway to uh, entrepreneurship through acquisition, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I tried to convince one of them to buy a business. That was the worst. You know, I think my biggest failure is there was this water jug business that was $180,000 in EBITDA years. Three guys replacing water jugs. Like amazing business, uh, like huge, you know, no customer concentration, incredibly recurring revenues, but it's way yeah. too small for an entrepreneur like me to buy. And I was like, you're 21 years old, drop out of your senior year of college, buy this business, you know, you and two other guys, you can pay yourself $100,000 a year, you can pay down your debt in two and a half years. And then you're going to learn so much more than you'd ever learned because this guy wanted to go and became like a regional investment banker. I was like, you would make more money, you'd learn so much more just running this water jug business. I couldn't convince him to do it. Just do it. I like that. Yeah, I agree. No, I, I, I think that's really valuable what you said in terms of, you know, providing quality learning experiences for interns, because I think that's what, you know, we hear consistently, you know, for for searchers who, who work with interns, which is in many, you know, in most cases, you know, making sure that, that you know, you're providing the, you know, case studies and really, you know, stretching them on the learning front is incredibly valuable and ultimately leads them to be, you know, more motivated and more interested in, in, in taking part, you know, in, in helping you on the search side. Yeah. It's a lot easier to do if they're earlier in their career versus later. So something who, somebody who is using it as their like MBA summer internship, it's a lot harder for you to give that value. If you're you know one year ahead of them on the MBA cycle, mm-hmm. or you've got, you know, a few more years of work experience, it's a lot easier for a 19, 20 year old because then you can do a lot of the just basic life skill advice is still really valuable for someone like that. Yeah. And as you reflect on that that search phase, in addition to working with interns, what, what was the most difficult part of that for you personally? So the difficult part is when you've made an offer and you want the guy to take the offer and they're either quiet or they like counter you in a way and knowing when that like, hey, this is my walk away point and sticking to it. So what I like to do is I write down my assumptions I needed to believe for this business to be worth buying ahead of time. Then I give the offer and that kept me somewhat honest to keep from like chasing a deal. But that's hard where you're like, I sent this great offer out. I'm really excited about this business. I talked to everybody I know about how great a business this is. And like one week later, guy hasn't said anything. Um, it's like, you know, jumping a little bit forward, the business I bought um, initially made an offer on the business. Guy says, okay, we're not going to go with you. This doesn't, doesn't meet our criteria. I write him a letter like to his home address, send him a card, say, hey, it's really sad. It looks like a great business. And then two weeks later, I reach out and say, okay, I'm willing to go halfway on what we were talking about. So this is after four weeks of not talking to this guy because I'm like, he's bluffing. I think I can, you know, wear him out. And then, you know, I hear and I talk to the owner about it, you know, three months after I bought the business. He's like, yeah, we really liked you, but you weren't, you know, hitting the dollar price. So I was really disappointed that you weren't going to make it, but then we were ready to move forward with other people. And then you emailed us out of the blue saying, actually, you're going to do it. But like knowing that sort of stuff is really can be emotionally difficult. Yeah. No, but I, I like that idea because deal heat is a real thing. Everyone everyone uh, suffers from it when once you're you know involved in a process. And so actually, I like the idea of write, writing down your assumptions ahead of time to make sure you're you know kind of st- staying true to what your the thesis is and the valuation that you're willing to accept. And then, you know, this is probably bad advice, but this is my advice, so I get to give it is I think getting into a business is incredibly valuable for a veteran. So like, I think we, I think most veterans are more likely to want a more perfect business than they're actually going to acquire than the other way around. So obviously you got to know yourself, but you know, understanding that every year, if you're in a business that meets some of the general criteria for, you know, a good business to buy, being in that business is incredibly valuable because every year you're in the business, you're presumably you're buying it four times, five times, you're paying down that debt. So an additional year of searching is essentially costing you that year of accruing the benefits of being in that business. Um, so it's something where you can, you can make like, you know, my personal, my the business I bought had hair on it. So it's something where in a complete vacuum, if I brought it to, you know, the HBS search fund community, they would say, yeah, you know, it's okay. Like you probably can do better. I'm much happier that I bought my business three mo- after three months of searching than if I bought a marginally better business 
after a year and three months of surgery. I think just both psychologically and also, you know, as a financial outcome. No, no, that makes sense. And how did you find the reception among small business owners to you as a searcher and then to you as a veteran? So, you know, the response to searcher is not very positive, I think. Um, it's something where they, you know, are concerned about what your source of funding is. And then more for brokers, they sort of see you as like, the, it's changing and it, it has changed since even since I searched in the past four years, but I think they're more receptive to it as a model. Um, but then they're like, this guy has no money and he's sort of like the last resort buyer. Luckily, the businesses that you're looking at as a self-funded you know, searcher, there's not many people looking to buy these businesses. So saying like, hey, you know, this is the guy who's willing to buy a you know, commercial maintenance business with less than a million dollar profit. There's only so many of you versus buying a much bigger business when then you're competing with you know, private equity or, or better known family offices, I think is a little bit more of a struggle. Um, but dealing with the owners, they're incredibly excited to talk to you because a good chunk of them are veterans themselves or they are, I'd say, business owners are business owners who don't go to elite schools are probably the most pro-military. That is a group of people who like veterans and respect veterans. And even if they didn't serve themselves, it's something that they, you probably think of themselves as being someone who's very pro-vet. So they're much more likely to meet with you and give you a time of day. And they also assume that you're competent at leading, which is something that they don't necessarily assume someone who's just coming out of a business school program and doesn't have that background. Yeah, no, I think I think that's absolutely one 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 of the, the the biggest advantages that veterans have, right? It's just that you know the ability to build that relationship with small business owners and kind of that predisposition for you know to, to view military service very favorably among many small business owners. Obviously, not all, but many. So sw- switching gears uh, to the business that you ultimately did acquire, so can can you yeah. just talk a little bit? About how did you find the business? What did that look like? Was it you know you reached out and contacted the owner directly? Was it through a broker? Yeah. So I had three total LOIs I put out. The first two were direct outreach. Both, you know, one blew up during the uh, due diligence phase of accounting. Second one, we didn't agree on LOI terms. The business I actually bought was through a broker. So it was a sort of really sleazy investment banker, like the lowest of, of level of investment banker you could find in Denver. The guy's key point is he bragged about how Dan Quayle, guy who's the vice president to uh, George H.W. Bush, was his partner at some point of time. So he'd always talk about golfing with Dan Quayle. That was like his go-to topic whenever there was like a pause. Um, so yeah, sleazy guy, uh, and then had this business where guy selling the business who I bought from a gentleman named Rick Reiner had you know reached out to his accountant and said, hey, I need help exiting my business. The accountant had done work before with this particular investment banker. So sort of got him into that funnel and then the seller was not particularly financially sophisticated, so didn't really understand whether or not the investment banker was a good banker or not. And guy had a, a fancy office and things like that. So that was enough that he decided to go with him. Um, so he was that broker was part of my outreach where once every two weeks I'd email these guys and say, hey, anything new? You know, we've met in person, we've had lunch. I'm interested in buying a business. And this was a business that, you know, $780,000 even thought business on two and a half million dollars in revenue with a very involved owner of 12 employees where the owner is literally the hub and everybody else is a spoke off of it, you know, limited universe of potential buyers. So something where when I said I was interested, interested in it, you know, the investment banker was willing to look at me as a possible actual buyer. Um, there was somewhat of a bidding process between me and like maybe one to two other, you know, not searchers, but fundless sponsors somewhat tied in the space but no one really serious, no strategic buyer, no real financial buyer, um, you know, settled on terms relatively quickly in about two and a half weeks for you know, three and a quarter times EBITDA with no seller's note. So something, again, that would scare the heck out of a lot of people who were buying business. So it was all cash deal, which was something we had to do diligence pretty heavily on why that was true. Um, and then uh, had a you know, two month long close process where we did some of that due diligence, found out the owner is an incredibly honest guy. So there's a point where I asked him, you know, in our first dinner together, where it's me, him, and the investment banker saying, what have other people who you're talking to about this business asked you about? And he's like, you're the first person I met. And then you see the investment banker kicking him under the table and say, no, you got to pretend that there's a huge amount of interest in your business. <laughs> um, but great guy, you know, something that I think is undervalued in the search community is buying from an honest seller who deeply cares about his business. Like we think we can outdo diligence a liar and that like, oh no, it's okay. There's a huge amount of ad backs, but like 
that is actually something that to me is more of a red flag than I would have thought when I was initially going through the process is having an honest seller because there's tons of things that a seller can realistically hide or not describe well that are really hard to out due diligence. So finding a person who you can trust and has integrity was something I was lucky to do buying the business and something that was very valuable. I, I think seller integrity is probably one of the single most important characteristics you can look for in a business and a, and and a, you know a former owner. So just curious in your diligence process, how did you kind of get confidence in, you know, in the integrity and the honesty of, of the seller? Because I know that that's something that, you know, we work very closely with veterans to try to, 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 to evaluate that, but it, it can be difficult in many, in many cases, especially with an intermediary, like a broker or an investment banker. So just, just curious kind of how, how you, uh, how you went about that. So one thing I was able to get the uh, seller to agree to was phone calls with customers where I you know, had to represent myself as someone who's building a self-storage facility and wanted essentially recommendations. So it was calling you know, one of his customers and pretending I was another potential customer versus saying, hey, I'm a potential buyer of the business. But he gave me a list of his top 10 customers and said, pick any other customer you want off this list. I'll give you their phone number. I'll set up a call and it's a chance for you to spend 15 to 20 minutes asking them questions about how I perform and something that said, Hey, he treats his customers very well. That was a huge positive. And then lots of time with the seller. So spending time with the seller and asking him some of the same questions over and over again in different ways to see if the answers change, spending time with him and his wife. And then my wife and I um, talking about general life stuff and seeing how he approached different things. And that helps you get there. But also these businesses tend to be pretty simple, especially the blue collar ones. So there's, you know, the way you hide things is something that would be somewhat obvious to some, to even a person outside the business, like doing a, uh, you know, a, a check of how do the books correspond with the actual cash coming in and out of the business to make sure there's not phantom invoices or something along those lines is due diligence that you can do yourself. And I would recommend you do yourself before you hire an accounting firm for a Q of E and spend that money. But all that stuff is as soon as you find a red flag is, is a very big issue because you say, Hey, Owner, so my busted LOI, the seller, you know, said, "Hey, our number one client is steady. You know, twenty six percent of our business. These guys are rock solid." And then I, googling that customer, that customer, I see, "Hey, this the customer's bank is moving out of the town where this business is, and they're probably shutting down operations. So that will probably be bad for this business." Something that the seller, you know, bring the seller, just go, "Oh yeah, you know, I I talked to them. I don't really think that's true. They're going to keep some people here, but I'm willing to adjust the price because of it." And that, to me, combined with the fact she had run massive expenses through the business in a way that was very blatant, I uh, said, so like, maybe I can't trust the seller. And that you know, was a deal that fell apart versus the deal I bought where the guy was incredibly honest. Uh, so that's really interesting. Were you able to get any, uh, you know, many interactions with the employees as well, just to, to get a sense for kind of what, what, what kind of a boss and leader the, the former seller was? So no interactions with employees. So that is, you know, when we talk a little bit later about biggest concern, day one step into the business is saying, you know, is, am I buying an empty box? That is always a question I think you have as a acquirer for a business that is a small business that doesn't have IP or things like that, asset light business like mine, um, but didn't have a chance to interact with him. He was a great tech and he built the business over 19 years from himself, essentially being really good at fixing things. He was not a particularly good people manager because he just didn't enjoy doing it. So it's something where there's actually a, an upgrade from him to me stepping into the business of not only just adding the basic processes and things like that of how do you lead a team where it's not everybody directly reporting to the, the owner of the business, but also just how you care about the employees and how you, know, how you treat them and sort of employee quality. So that's something that you as a veteran stepping the business actually may be better than me, than the seller coming. And how, how did you think about replacing the technical abilities of the CEO? It, it's an issue we see all the time in, in, in small business acquisitions. I'm sure you saw it in a lot of the other ones that you looked at. And just curious how, how you approach that. So I was arrogant enough that from the military, I'm like, I got put in a drum platoon as a non, uh, you know, as a non-pilot, as a non-aviator. And I, you know, ran the heck out of 22 aviators as an Intel guy. So I was like, yeah, you know, I can figure that out. <laughs> is, you know, you get, you get thrown, you get put in charge of 30 guys. You're like, I have no idea what I'm doing as a 22 year old. And then I managed so, to So a second Lieutenant Hubris. Is that, that's what it's exactly. like. saying we're going North. Maybe we're going south, <laughs> I, I said, we're going North. So th- that, that worked out all right. Um, but, you know, again, buying blue collar businesses, pro- 
there's some things there's some things that you could have say regulatory reasons that they could be relatively complicated but you buying this business running this business are probably going to be smart enough that you could be a great tech if you wanted to be within three months like for me i now know how to do all these things despite being someone who's not very handy but like i now know low voltage i now know welding i know no fabricating and that's something that's no value add for me knowing how to do that and doing those things himself in the business but it's very great from a leadership perspective where if you're out there digging post holes with the guys that means a lot to them it's less important that you know you are the best person for fixing this particular item which was more how it was with the with the seller. Yeah. And on that, can you just give a little more detail on, on what the business actually does? Like, how, how does it make money? Who, who, who is the customer set? Yeah. So our customers are big REITs. Um, so like public storage, extra space, cheap, smart. So these are publicly traded or they are you know large, privately held real estate investment uh, trusts that own large numbers of self-storage facilities. So they have interesting breakdown where they serve operations, facilities, and new construction teams. So operation teams run these facilities day to day. And when the roll-up door breaks and won't close down, they have an IT system that submits work orders to approve vendors. So in the state of Colorado, we're the only approved vendor for fixing certain types of work. So that means we have a sort of actuarially recurring revenue where I don't have a contract for each facility, but I know on average a certain number of roll-up doors break a year, a certain number of gates are broken through a year. And as the only vendor, I know I'm getting that work. So it's something where you have needs to get broken, needs to get fixed today is broken. We have upgrades to existing facilities that, for example, a wrought iron gate has rusted through because it's right next to the bay in California. It has salt air chewing through it, and that happens every three years. So it doesn't need to be replaced today, but it needs to be replaced in the next three months before someone slices their hand on it. Those are sort of planned projects. And then when I bought the business, there was a new construction part of the business. So we were like a 67, 70% maintenance facilities work and then a 30% new construction. So new builds of self-storage, putting in access control and gates. So that was, you know, a potential red flag for me buying the business was a level of cyclicality that we've essentially gotten rid of. So now we're a pure play maintenance facility business and we don't really have a, a new construction arm anymore. And did you do that just because you felt like it was a strategic distraction or what, what was the rationale behind that? And so incredibly cyclical. So different yeah. management structure. Um, something where to just where the cycle is in Colorado, where the, where the bottom of the cycle. So I could fight like heck for some small amount of business that, you know, I would have worse margins on than just doing the same work for facilities for repairing it. So it's something where it doesn't make sense, but when the, the cycle comes back up in Colorado and, you know, it gets to the point where demand is very high for our type of work and we see strong margins, I'll get back into it. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And even with a business with a, a highly ethical seller, I, I have to imagine there were a couple of interesting things you learned uh, in the in the weeks after acquiring the business. So always yeah. curious, you know, what what did you learn in that that you know month after the acquisition that you didn't either either know or fully appreciate, but before you acquired the business and stepped into the CEO role. So I had two employees I had to fire in the first week for meth addiction out of twelve. So that was the stepping into the business. So we had. When I bought the business, it was like 10 guys in Denver and two in Colorado Springs. And the guys in Colorado Springs, like the owner, when I took out the business, was already like, yeah, I think you're probably going to have to churn these guys. Quality of work's been really low recently. So something stepping into it, I knew probably an operational issue down there. Operational issue was driven by meth addiction. So guys were literally coming in. We had a storage facility they worked out of down there. So coming into the storage unit, you know, smoking meth clocking in, pretending to do work orders and clocking out. And you like really quickly, I was like, why in the heck are we invoicing these work orders? The customers are telling us this work hasn't been done. And then, you know, you, you figure it out when you do a, an inspection tour down there without giving a warning and then you catch them doing it. Um, so that was a, a uh, important decision and uh, an important uh, summary. But again, like hiccup in the road, move through it. You show customers that like, Hey, fire these two guys. We're now supporting this from Denver with guys I can trust and then immediately move on. So I haven't had a customer talk to me about that more than two weeks after it happens. And then something that, you know, if I've been about to buy the bit three months from out of, if I've been buying the business and I've been during the LY phase and you're like, Hey, as soon as you take over, you're gonna have to fire 20% you know, of your workforce. <laughs> <laughs> Probably would have been a little worried, but something now is a funny story and had no impact on the outcome of the business. And were, were you able to basically go out and hire and 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 backfill effectively? It, it yeah. sounds like it sounds like it wasn't a, a long term issue at all. 
No, but and it was great strategic learning, actually, because it sort of showed me, you know, when I bought the business, I thought two paths for growth. One is either horizontal expansion in Colorado, because we were an only Colorado business, just saying, how do I provide the same services I provide for other commercial facilities? So it's doing it for warehouses, you know, apartments, HOAs, or I support the same customer base in different states. And then the Colorado Springs, because it wasn't somewhere we were there every day, it was like, can I have two techs in another state? that are just Joes essentially operating. It's like, no, you can't. You can't trust two Joes with themselves. They need to have an NCO. So every time we've expanded geographically, it's been using a military recruiting firm to hire a former NCO. So hire a former E5, E6 to be that general manager. So that person I can trust, that person's the person I deal with every day. And they deal with the three to four Joes that we hired to that market. I don't have a situation where I'm trusting, you know, three E3s to figure it out where they may be great or they may be E3s do stupid stuff sometimes and make more sense to trust an E6, you know, donor. That's great. And have you, have you found a lot of success hiring veterans uh, in, into the roles in your company? Yeah. So I think it's a incredibly valuable pipeline of employee talent for blue collar businesses. Uh, one is that they're coming into a culture where you understand where they're coming from. So you can translate military resumes into, is this guy a good fit for my job? So no offense to make any chemical warfare officers, but like, say I see a guy who's, you know, chemical warfare and NCOIC for six years at division. Like, I probably don't want to hire that guy. Again, no offense to, to chemos, but like, probably not the highest speed of high speed guys. Well, for me, I've hired a ton of helicopter and aviation mechanics. Um, so guys who are used to dealing with, you know, relatively valuable assets. I've had more success hiring army and Marines because they're, more willing to just say, figure it out. Unless the air force, like we need to have the, the process documented hundred percent on how to do this. Again, all stereotypes, which again, as a small business owner, you get to in, in, indulge in uh, the different, uh, different service branches. So I appreciate it. But, um, and then for these guys, it's a huge value add because they're getting out. They don't really know what they're looking for. So using a military recruiting company, they sort of funnel into Bradley Morris or wherever they're dealing with. They're saying, you know, I have all this experience. I want someone who values me. I want to be paid in a good way, but I really have no idea what type of work I want to do. So I have, you know, someone say, telling me I should be a medical sales device guy in Houston as a former E6 getting out. Or I have someone who says, hey, you can be essentially a maintenance NCO running a new market. So there's some entrepreneurial spirit to it. You're getting paid seventy to $80,000 a year stepping into this role. So it's a good paycheck for these guys moving to these locations, especially say if they're getting out after they're 20 or maybe say they're service you know, disabled in some way, shape or form. Um, and then they are going to have a path for growth where they can get to hundred to $110,000 as that market grows. So they see, you know, path for growth financially, a leader who cares about them and understands what it means to be a former NCO in terms of what their skill sets are and also just the value they've created. So knows when to leave them alone, give them task, purpose, and standard, and then let them roll. But then also knows like if we do, I still do counselings because I find that's an effective way to, to do that leadership. So we do monthly counselings where we talk about the financial results of each geographic area. So like teaching those guys the basics of a PL and saying like, okay, here's our COGS percentage. Here's our labor percentage. Here's how this looks over the past couple months or years. And that's something that they learn a heck of a lot of which you as a military leader and someone who has some basic business background can provide. In addition to the counseling, anything else you do from a transition perspective, whether onboarding or training that you found is, is effective? So we do training for our specific skill set. So we bring them to Colorado for a period of time. Something that I've looked at in terms of us continuing to grow is how we create an RG Maintenance Academy or Center of Excellence, if you want to do that as the military analogy where I can train these guys faster. Right now we do left seat, right seat, sort of apprenticeship style. Um, but I think it'd be more valuable to actually have a, train, a set curriculum, but something where we haven't had the scale really to apply yet. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, as a military owner, like we take September 11th off as a holiday for my business, things like that, that is like a, a bit of respect and a nod to the military heritage that veterans appreciate and something where that, you know, they, they feel like they're working for, you know, a continuation of their, of their some, somewhat a continuation of their life work where you have to say, hey, like, look, this is not important what we used to do. Family comes first. It's more important than a self-storage gate being stuck open. 
but you get to work in an environment where you still have a military leader treats you like you're professional and you get to grow and develop a team and you're responsible for those guys. And that's your fire team, your squad. You don't have a platoon leader who's trying to micromanage every single private in your team. Yeah. And as you are looking at, you know, having grown the business quite a bit uh, under, under your four years of leadership, any other kind of systems that you you put in place uh, or, or changes to the to the basic business or the way you you know the, the business managed people, for example, uh, as you've looked to scale and grow the business? Yeah. So when you're running one of these businesses, you you naturally hit sort of different stages and tiers. So I've seen it done at stage like zero through four. When I bought the business, it was a stage zero business where the all questions went up to the owner. It doesn't matter how you know how little, how small, how easy, how hard. And that first step of professionalization was saying, how do we get a competent office manager? So someone who can do the basic accounting, do the basic dispatching, do the basic material ordering, and just a level of professionalization. So it's not someone we're paying $12 an hour to pick up the phone, but can do that sort of basic first SGNA that's into the business, then adding those general managers, which is something that, again, everything used to run up, used to be completely flat structure with every tech talks to the owner. And then adding that first level of hierarchy of saying, we have a general manager now in each market, you know, bigger markets, we have a general manager and an assistant general manager. So there's sort of a path for growth. And then, you know, I'm looking forward to now the next step where we sort of go from a phase one to a phase two business saying, how do we introduce a sales structure into the business? Because right now I still do all the sales. And then how do we start to continue to add the sort of necessary backbone to the business where we can continue to standardize things and it gets less out of owner's head or owner's ability to manage things and more onto basic IT infrastructure of using things like Dropbox when we used to use a whiteboard to track project status or saying we're using, you know, a work, we have Workway, which is a work order management system. We used to use paper tickets and switching to that. So you're going to see a lot of those things, but when you step into a business, you need to, I would suggest you resist the immediate urge to say, I want to professionalize the hell out of this thing. Because one, it's going to scare existing employees just because a lot of change at once before you've earned that credibility to drive that change. And then two, that stuff you know, is expensive and can be expensive especially in the IT improvements. So really being aware of what the value proposition for this is and then is it needed at this moment? So like I've always run the business and this is you know an argument for against where we're at the edge of our operational seat in terms of how much SGNA we have, but pushing support down, you know, what I call pushing support down to the warfighter, but making sure the techs and the GMs have as much as possible and having less overhead at top. You know, people manage businesses differently, but I've found that to be effective. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you know, in those in those first hundred days that that you know you always hear about as a new CEO, obviously it sounds like you had to make two personnel decisions. But just to that point, did you end up making any sort of significant changes or or operational tweaks, or did you really try to do that more gradually? Yeah. So buy you know buying the business at the end of September meant the Christmas and the New Year's was an obvious cutting off point for this is the transition from old owner to to new owner. So we made, you know, those two personnel changes right away, which were more just like, I have to make a decision. You know, you can't keep two guys using meth, earning company dollars, not earning any money. Harder decision was letting go, you know, a uh, longer time employee who was that little bit of SGNA, who was essentially the person who picked up the phone. So the problem was that she wasn't very good at picking up the phone. She wasn't very nice to the customers. Uh, and then she was very bad at tracking work orders. So we wouldn't bill a lot. So we'd do work and we would not send out invoices. Uh, which is a problem if you're running, you know, running a small business. So that person had some, though, had some emotional heft in the organization. So someone that people said hi to every morning, and it's not an issue where, like, if someone's doing math, it's very easy to say we had to fire this person. No one, very few people in the company are going to be like, you should have given that guy, you know, a chance after you caught him doing that. It's much harder for like this person was just not the employee we need to have in this role, and that's a decision that. It needs to get made, I think, early enough in the process that stuff hasn't settled, but not day one, not week one, not month one. It's something where you're like, yes, I know I can upgrade this position. I've earned enough credibility in the organization to say, hey, this guy's not just coming in and change things around. But you're going to screw up a lot of things. Like I screwed up my first payroll, which is one of those things they tell you to like never screw up your first payroll. <laughs> I screwed up my first payroll. One of the reasons why I let this woman to go. But we you know, checked three times saying like, hey, ADP, are we good? Are we good on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday? On Thursday, I see taxes pulled out of it. So I'm like, good. I like taxes have been pulled out of my bank account. 
money to come out on Friday. On Friday, no cash deposited into any of the employees' accounts for Friday payroll. Calling ADP, they're like, well, we called Capital One, who was our bank at the time. Capital One said, because it was you know Capital One, uh, Spark, small business versus Capital One, whatever. So they're like, we called Capital One, they didn't know you were an account. And then, so you have to call, you know, so then I ended up going to Walmart. Uh, why are you essentially getting these guys like money, money order checks? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm paying these guys, everybody in cash that day. And then always money order check. And then on the Monday afterwards, I come into the office and I'm like, look, here's a hundred bucks. Every one of you guys is an apology. I'm sorry we did this. Never going to happen again. But that was one of those things they tell you, like never screw up your first payroll. And I completely screwed up my first payroll. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So it sounds like you recovered pretty well from it though. Yeah, it was something where, you know, happy employees are like, well, I'm happy I got an extra hundred bucks. So I was going to say the hundred dollars yeah. probably smoothed a lot well, over, right? <laughs> well, for a lot of the guys, though, like, you know, they have a bunch of bills that are coming out on that Friday evening or that Saturday. So, like, if you're someone who's used to having a comfortable paycheck and having money in the bank account, if your company was like, look, we're depositing money on Monday instead of Friday this week, you'd be like, that's a little bit disconcerting, but it wouldn't be like there's all these knockout effects of that happening. But for some of these guys, they're like, look, then I'm late on my phone bill. I'm late on my rent. That means I have to pay this fee. So it was a huge inconvenience and, you know, something that meant a lot to those employees being late. And that's your, your number one job as an employer saying, you were doing work for me. I will pay you. It's like the, you know, it's the, it's the number one contract. We have. That is the contract, right? Yeah, exactly. So putting fear into them that you're actually going to pay them is a bad sign. That's funny. Well, just, just, you know, as you look back now, I guess four years of, of being the CEO and running the business, uh, similar to, to the earlier question, just any any thoughts for veterans, whether kind of what you wish again, what you wish you knew, <laughs> uh, you know, what you know today that you wish you had known when you first stepped into the into the CEO seat? So I would just say do it as a first advice. Like it is a great career path. I mean, I cannot recommend, I'm an evangelist for it, but for veterans, I cannot recommend it enough as a way to continue to you know, give back to your country because these businesses die unless someone takes them over. The owner retires, he closes the shop one day and fires every employee. So like that is a value add to society for you doing it. It's great for your you know, personal financial success, which is very valuable and it's much less risky than people think it is. So you know, for in the past four years, no, lots of veterans have bought businesses and no, lots of people have bought businesses. I do not know a single person who has completely blown up a business. I know people have had outcomes where they say, hey, this is not as good as I'd like it to be, but they're still pulling a paycheck from that business that is still very respectful. Maybe they say, hey, look, this is not going to be a great outcome for investors. This is not going to be something where I build a ton of wealth out of this, but something where they can still say, I'm making a good living. I'm providing good jobs to these guys. And that's the bad outcome, right? And lots of people have had very good outcomes. But you know, there's a worry that you're saying, hey, I'm going to take this thing over, I'm going to immediately go bankrupt, completely blow this thing up. That is just not something that has happened that often. And if it does, like you will land on your feet. People who do search and don't acquire a business or you know, the very few people who have done a search and blown up businesses have best found things to do afterwards that have still been very successful. So it's a much lower risk, risk option than you think. And then going into the traditional corporate world is also risky, which is not often thought about as that. Like your business can be acquired, you can get let go. Your boss can piss off his boss's boss in a way that you somehow are screwed because now your boss isn't liked. And then you have no idea why all of a sudden, like no money or no promotions are coming into your team. So you own your destiny to some extent as a entrepreneur running a small business. And that's a huge value. No, I agree completely on that. So a question we ask, we ask all of the, uh, the, the veterans we speak to who, who have done successful searches, you know, both through your search phase and now having been a small business owner for four years, if it, if, if it could not be your, your existing business, what, what business would you, would you either start from scratch or tomorrow, if you had to go acquire another business, what would it be? So start from scratch. You see how many software as a service businesses there are in weird niches. So like self-storage has a ton of SaaS businesses that are tied specifically to self-storage both in management of rentals, in uh, essentially customer acquisition for self-storage, in auctioning off items that are abandoned for self-storage. So there's SaaS niches everywhere. And just if you're going to start a business and then you're like, I could get a multiple of 12 times revenue for whatever I'm selling, 
not a bad business to start. So like taking a swing at a SaaS business in some super weird niche where no one has yet combined with some industry experience in it and saying, hey, how can I create the SaaS business is a great idea. Um, but most of us don't have that, that amazing idea. So if, if you can't do that, there's tons of great businesses that actually go by. We talked about the water jug business, which is like something where, again, you need no capital to buy the water jug business. You could have done it as a 21-year-old. It would have been a great business to buy. And to be clear, this is literally just going and replacing wa- replacing water jugs that have been drunk, things like that? Yes, replacing water jugs that have been drunk in both residential <laughs> and commercial locations. Like the big, just because they're heavy to get up and fill water if you're doing it wrong. So they literally just had routes. So it's like literally driving around with two guys and then replacing water jugs. Um, I've always looked at the FedEx businesses have been interested in me in the same way. And I'm sure there's some reason they're not as good as they look in terms of FedEx routes, but like those to me seem like something else that'd be interesting. But as a actually unique um, business, you know, you see some of the aviation type businesses that I think, again, are scary to some people who don't have that background. But a a gentleman like Aaron Kenzie, who's had a great success with American Patrols, which is a a mapping business down in Texas, um, tied to the oil and gas industry, uh, I looked at one that was more around geoconstruction in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and then you know, those businesses, there's a stupid belief that drones are going to take over over that space and those businesses are in trouble. But realistically, there's huge regulatory burdens to using drones. You actually have to have a pilot following the drone around or keep them line of sight from the ground. So they're really ex- expensive to operate versus this pipeline of young pilots who are trying to get their hours in. Um, so some of those aerial surveillance mapping businesses where you have a natural monopoly because you're the you own the airfield, like the rural airfield that's near where the service is being done, actually are, are very strong businesses that are not as well looked as they could be. No, that's really interesting. Well, Andy, really do appreciate your uh, your talking to us today. Just a- any last thoughts for veterans interested in, in learning more about ETA? Just re- reach out to other veterans who've done it. So we talked a little bit earlier. There's a great community of people who've done this. They're always happy to talk to people. You know, I think this is a great resource to have a podcast to answer some of the basic questions. So you can come in and answer, you know, and ask more specific ones. But even if it's just the most general 15 minute conversation of saying, what type of search should I do? Can I raise money? How should I structure my interns? What should I start to work on? Like that is a call that every veteran who's done a search will be happy to have with you and is a resource you should definitely lean on. Great. Well, th- thank you again, Andy, for, uh, for joining us. This was great. All right. Well, thanks for having me, Alex. I appreciate it.